Okay, so tonight we're going to be learning Parashat Mishpatim, which is the Parashat of last Shabbat. Happens to be by Bar Mitzvah Parashat, so I have a special uh, affinity for this, uh, this Parashat. But what I would like to examine in the Parashat that I think is a, uh, a subject that um, runs through, it's a theme that runs through Parashat Mishpatim. Parashat Mishpatim is a Parashat that deals primarily with laws that govern the conduct Ben Adam Lachavero. Not exclusively. It's not exclusively about mitzvot that pertain to the relationships between people. There are mitzvot Ben Adam Lamakom. There are mitzvot in the Paraja that relate to our relationship with Hashem. There are laws of kashrut. There are laws against idolatry. There are laws that. Um, there are ritual laws. There are laws about the Chagim, about Shabbat. Um, there, are, uh, there is a range of. Uh, of topics covered in Parashat Mishpatim, but it's mostly associated, I'd say, with the uh, with the subject of uh, of Ben Adam Lechaviro of civil laws of the Torah. So, if a person is thinking of um, if a person thinks of Parashat Mishpatim, that's that's mainly what they what they think of. And I think that most of the psukim, most of the verses that are relevant to the study of civil law, when you're studying the Talmud or if you're studying Halakha, and you're studying the areas of halakha that are uh, civil law related. You mostly deal with verses that come out of this week's parasha, not exclusively, but 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 mostly so. So uh, woven in, and what what I find interesting is that woven into the discussion of uh, civil law is something more than just regulation. We we as you know members of a civilized society. And any civilized society, we know that B'nai Noach also have laws that govern conduct ben adam uh, between human beings and uh, regulate the ways in which we interact and make sure that they are fair and not harmful and, uh, and so on, and to protect the rights of, uh, of people from being infringed upon. So we are used to uh, the idea of having, um, having civil laws, of course, in our society. Any society has a uh, has civil law, but what makes the Torah somewhat unique is that the Torah deals with a uh, with civil law in a in, in a different framework. It it has a uh, it has an a, a uh, what I would say is sort of a um, a sense of an attitude that's being cultivated by these mitzvot. So I just want to give you an example of what I'm talking about when I say that. Um, one of the things that we can do on Zoom that's really nice is we can do something called sharing the screen. So I'm just going to share the screen here, and I hope everybody can see it. Um, this is from Parashat Mishpatim. I'm using Safaria here. Safaria is a very helpful, uh, uh, a very helpful website. It's also a very helpful app uh, you can have on your phone that contains um, not every. Uh, Jewish book that there is, but quite a broad range of Jewish texts, and many of them, if not most, are translated in English too. And it really covers every um, every category of Jewish uh, writing, from philosophical to halacha to Tanakh. Very, very useful website. In any case, that's what I'm looking at here, and this is Parashat Mishpatim. Now, one of the things that we notice about Parashat Mishpatim is that oftentimes the laws, and I'm just going to give you a couple of examples as I'm scrolling down here, a couple of examples where you see that the Torah speaks about the violation of the rights of others or it speaks about the violation of civil law in, uh, in a tone that goes beyond just regulating behavior, uh, beyond what we would find, let's say, in a... Uh, 
in a typical um, in a typical uh, uh, law code. But but what you're hearing in the background is probably my own house making noise, by the way, because there's all kinds of uh, appliances running in the background, and this is the best area for me to sit. So if you hear noise, it's probably my fault. Probably not anybody else's. Um, but I, but so if any but if anyone else is uh, allowing noise to come through, please do mute yourselves. Um, I but I confess that I am probably a big culprit. In any case, what it says here is, uh, for example, in verse Yud Dalid, okay, we have Yazid Ish If a man schemes against another, as you can see, the English is right there. I think this is the JPS translation that they use, Jewish Publication Society classic translation. You should take him from my very altar to be put to death. Why does it have to mention taking him from my altar? What is the point there? It should just say that if somebody commits murder intentionally, they're subject to the death penalty. I mean, why create such a dramatic scenario that we have to picture somebody who was on the altar uh, offering a sacrifice, a kohen, or somebody who's involved in the service of God in some way, being taken away, dragged away, uh, take him from there in order to die. Why does it have to give us such a colorful picture of the, uh, of the situation where we, we catch the perpetrator in the act of serving God? But there is a, there is a certain um, sensibility that is being conveyed to us. It's not just a matter of regulating our behavior, telling us what we're not allowed to do, what we are allowed to do, but it goes beyond that. It's telling us an attitude we're supposed to have. We should recognize that a murderer is not somebody who can stand before God. A murderer is somebody that God rejects. God despises a person who would take the life of another uh, human being, and therefore the service that they're rendering to God is worthless, and, uh, and, and we should have no compunction about taking that person off of the altar and, and uh, executing them because they have no right to be there. So the Torah is trying to emphasize the extent to which God rejects a person who commits murder. It's something that, uh, that it, you know, cannot be covered up or made up for by uh, offering a sacrifice or something like that. So that's already instilling in us certain attitude towards the violation of other people's rights or the treatment of others with, uh, uh, you know, with cruelty or indifference or violence. Another example that I always thought was interesting was that uh, is in Pasuk Kaf. If a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and he dies there, he must be avenged. It's an interesting language. Being avenged is more than just saying you should uh, hold the master accountable for killing the slave. It says that he, sh- he should be avenged, meaning that there's a, a sense that um, a master might treat a slave with, uh, as less than a human, might regard this individual who is in servitude uh, as lacking um, you know, the, the image of God, not being someone whose life is, is worth uh, preserving or who has the, same, um, has the same quality or value in the eyes of God as any other life. And therefore, by saying he should be avenged, it's an even stronger language than just saying to execute the person who committed the murder. Saying that he should be avenged means that, uh, that God is, is uh, taking vengeance for the death of the slave against the master. So it's a very interesting language there. And then we have other examples of that, and I'm just skipping through. Um, there are various uh, uh, laws here that pertain to all kinds of different, um, uh, all kinds of different infractions that people commit against one another. But I just want to take some uh, some key cases that, to me, reflect the um, this idea of instilling in us a sense of justice and or compassion. It says you should not ill treat any widow or orphan. 
If you do mistreat them, If they cry out to me, I will hear their cry. And my anger will blaze. And I will kill you with the sword. And then your wives will be widows and your children will be orphans because you mistreated widows and orphans. In other words, it's justice of God that you deserve the fate or that your family will deserve the fate that you are indifferent to the uh, widow and orphan so then your children will be orphans meaning you will die or your wife will be a widow uh, because you will die and then they will have to suffer the same fate um, uh, uh, that your victim suffered the victims of your mistreatment suffered so there, again it doesn't speak only in terms of what you should do that you shouldn't mistreat these people who are less fortunate who, are, uh, who have less influence less protection who are forgotten by society they fall between the cracks of society it's not just that but God is saying that he's going to advocate for them and he is going to punish the perpetrator in a severe way another example of course is where it says here that if, uh, if you take as a pledge your neighbor's garment in other words you borrow mo- he borrows money from you and you ask him to leave a collateral. But that collateral happens to be his shirt. So it says you don't have to return it to him before the nighttime. Now, now, this law itself is really going above and beyond. Uh, um, I mean, even right before that, the idea of not lending on interest is basically saying that if you lend money to a person, it should be out of a sense that they are in need and not in order to take advantage of them or profit from them. And similarly, you give, uh, if you take a pledge from somebody, return it to them before the sun goes down. And then what does the Torah say? It says, It's his only shirt. He's similar to Lord, It's the only covering of his skin that he has. How is he going to sleep if you, t- if you keep his shirt? And if he cries to me, I'm going to hear it because I am compassionate. I am merciful. What does that mean? It's saying to you, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the poor person, someone who was so indigent that they borrowed money and the only collateral they had to offer you was the shirt off their back. How can you hold that shirt from them when you know they're going to go to sleep at night without anything on their body to cover them and to keep them warm? So this is not just regulating our conduct. It's not just telling us what to do or not to do. It's not just telling, you know, it's not just uh, a, a kind of a law that we would find any kind of secular code of law. This is trying to convey to us an attitude or a set of values that that we are supposed to adopt in the way that we look at others and the way that we treat them. But treating is an action. How we see them in our mind is, is more fundamental than that. And um, again, another instance of it is, If you see the, uh, en- your enemy's ox or donkey wandering around, return it to him. And even though you don't like that person if you see the donkey of somebody that you hate bending under its burden meaning it can't get up do not refrain from helping him literally means leave with him so the um, most of the commentaries inter- interpreted here azov meaning azor help him Help him out. Don't leave the animal suffering like that. We should, even though you don't like the owner, should still help him. That's the way that the uh, that's the way that most of the commentaries interpret the interpret the verse. However, there's another interpretation that uh, the Unkulu says, which is leave. Azov means leave what is in your heart against the person and do the right thing. 
forget about whatever dispute you have, whatever beef you have with them, and um, and re- you know return their lost object or help their poor animal that's suffering, and you know and and uh, let let bygones be bygones, bury the hatchet with the person, and 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 do what is right in the eyes of God. And I've spoken about it many times before. The halacha that if you see two people, one of them is your enemy and one of them is your friend, and they're in the same situation of having a donkey that is. Uh, crushed under its burden and that needs help, you're supposed to actually help your enemy first because the enemy is harder to help. You have to overcome your yetzaran, your resentment towards that person and your natural disinclination to assist them. Um, whereas your friend, it's natural to want to do it. It satisfies your own desire that you want to be closer to your friend and you want to help them and have the positive regard from your friend. But with your enemy, you wouldn't feel that way. So actually you should overcome your yetzaran, help them first. But azov ta mo means leave what is in your heart, Uncle says, and help the person. And, uh, and again, there are many examples of this. Don't oppress a stranger because you know what a stranger feels like. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. You would never see a law code, an American law code. Speak about how you should feel or how you should draw from your sense of history, um, you know, your personal history, your national history, and how you deal with other people. These are attitudes that are supposed to be instilled in us. And so I think of Mishpatim, and, you know, and it goes without saying that Mishpatim could not ever be and is not intended to be a comprehensive law code of any society. It doesn't have enough laws. It barely touches upon all of the different points of, uh, of commerce and interaction among people. Yes, it has tort law, it has damages, it has uh, goring of oxen, it has stealing, and ha- but there are not nearly enough cases, examples, or, uh, or principles here to really run a society to comprise an entire code for the governance of a community, let alone of an entire nation. And so therefore, it's very clear that these are highlights of the law as it's supposed to be practiced. And most of the law and most of the halakha was really Torah Shebaal Peh, was oral Torah that uses these psukim as its uh, foundation and as its basis. But essentially, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to govern any society based on these points of, uh, of halakha here and these points of mitzvot. Obviously, the halakha goes far beyond this in terms of what regulations it expects us to observe in our interactions with others and in our treatment of the property of others and our safeguarding of the rights of others, both in terms of their, you know, their bodies and their lives, as well as their, you know, their, their uh, property, their animals, and, and so on. So this is not comprehensive, but I think these, all of these cases drive home a point about what our attitude needs to be towards our fellow men and women. It's not just about what we do or don't do. And I wanted to bring to your attention on this note something that is also a very famous uh, uh, source that I think I may have mentioned in the past before, but I'm just going to flip over to it, and I hope you can still see it on my screen share here, that we have, a, um, we have here the Aseret uh, HaDibrot, uh, the, um, which I know is going back two weeks instead of just one week, uh, but it's Lo Tachmod Echa. The question always becomes, can I really change the way that I feel? Can I really change the way that I, you know, my attitude? Because you're telling me, give up my resentment towards this person and help him with his donkey. Uh, Think about 
the person who doesn't have anything to sleep with at night and empathize with them and, and return their collateral, their pledge, so they have something to sleep in at night. Which, by the way, the Rambam says in the Moran Nebuchim, the whole purpose of that mitzvah is basically to discourage you from taking a collateral from the poor person altogether because you're going to have to schlep it back and forth every single day. You're not going to want to do that. But the point is that all of these things, can I really change my, my heart? Can I really change my feelings towards that person? Can I really change my attitude or, uh, you know, develop empathy if I don't have it? So Ibn Ezra actually has a very famous Ibn Ezra here that he comments on this very point where it says, Lo tachmod echa. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Uh, Don't covet your, the wife of your friend, his, his male or female slave, his animals, or anything else that belongs to him. And the Ibn Ezra asks the famous question. Now here it's actually in English, which is really remarkable because normally you don't find the Ibn Ezra written in English here. But it's nice that we have it, it came up in English here for those of you who might have more difficulty reading Ibn Ezra in Hebrew. But I think that the point is here that it says that he asked the question like this, a question that bothers many people. And he himself says it bothers many people. How is it that a man could not covet in his heart that which is beautiful and appears pleasant? In other words, uh, what do you, how can you tell a person not to covet? How can you tell a person not to desire something desirable? So he says, I'll give you a parable to explain this. You should, that a villager who sees that the king's daughter is beautiful will never covet her in her heart and think that he's going to be with her intimately because he knows this is impossible. And he's not going to be a lunatic who thinks that he can have wings to fly in the sky. You know, just like a person doesn't want to be with his mother, even though she is beautiful, because he knows you don't have that. Well, you don't have relationships like that with your immediate family. So must every enlightened person know that a beautiful woman or money is not attained by a person because of wisdom or knowledge, but is because that which God apportioned to him. And Kohelet said, to the one who did not toil in it, will he give it as his portion, etc. Now, he, and he quotes the Talmud that says that uh, children, life, and sustenance comes from the mazal. Okay, so he says, because of this, the enlightened one will not desire and not covet, because he knows that Hashem forbade him the wife of his friend. It's more removed in his eyes than the daughter of the king is in the eyes of the villager. Therefore, he will rejoice in his portion, and he won't place in his heart to covet or desire something that is not his, because he knows that God did not give it to him, and so on. He trusts in his creator that Hashem will give him what's right in his eyes, and so on and so forth. Now, this is, I'm skipping a lot of the points here, and it doesn't actually translate that well into English as it flows in Hebrew. It sounds a lot more um, elegant, but that's not the point. The point is that what the Ibn Ezra is saying is that he's basically putting, uh, giving us an example of a person, let's say, uh, let's put it in our terms today. A, per, a person will see some celebrity on television or on the internet who is very beautiful. And they're marrying another celebrity. They don't feel jealous like, oh, I, I mean, I'm talking about a normal person who doesn't have psychological problems or doesn't have delusional, you know, is not delusional. That the person doesn't believe, oh, I'm so jealous, I should be the person who is marrying that celebrity. Um, or they see, the, here he gives the example of a princess, you know, a villager and a princess. A villager doesn't think, oh, I should be the one marry, marrying the princess. She's out of your league. There's no possibility that you would ever marry the princess. There's no possibility that you would ever really marry a celebrity if you're not in that world. You're not going to marry the celebrity. You're not going to be the person um, who is, you know, in their league. Again, so he says in the same way, any person's wife or possessions or anything that God has given them is not something that's accessible to you. It's not something that's possible. The problem is, and he says, like, just like a person doesn't think that they could have wings and fly when they're not a bird. What's the point? The point is that we always think it's possible that it could have been mine. It's 
it's possible that it should have been mine. It really should be or could be mine. And because we believe it should be or could be ours, therefore we fantasize about having it and we start to desire it and we start to seek ways to get it that are usually illicit. He says, but if we looked at it as something completely out of our league, out of our realm, out of our framework, because it belongs to somebody else and it wasn't meant to be ours, it was meant to be theirs. Just like we wouldn't think about our immediate relative as a potential spouse. And we wouldn't think about sprouting wings and flying. And we wouldn't think about marrying a princess or a prince or a celebrity. We should also think the same about what belongs to our, our friend, our fellow human being, that it was that which God destined for them to have. And it wasn't meant to be ours. It wasn't supposed to be ours. And therefore, we accept that it isn't ours. What is the Ibn Ezra really saying, though? There's a deeper point in the Ibn Ezra here. Because the analogy is great and the parable is great. But what is really the concept that he's trying to convey? I think what he's trying to convey to us is that your emotions alone are emotions. Emotions are not rational emotions are feelings and you know we as, as we you know our society has grown to understand and to accept that you can't reason with feelings feelings are what they are but what you can do so you can't directly oppose a feeling or tell a person to feel a certain way that will not work but what you can do is change the way that they think about things and if you change the way that they think about things their emotions follow and that's the amazing capacity of the human being to change by transforming their perspective. If you look at the situation differently, all of a sudden you feel differently about the situation. If you look at something that goes wrong as a tragedy, so you're going to be sad, but if you look at something that goes not according to plan as an opportunity to learn or an opportunity to develop skills that are going to help you not only get out of this particular dilemma, but perhaps even succeed more in the future, or that the loss of, let's say, a job, sometimes people experience that as a tragedy, but more often than not, it opens new doors for them that they're able to succeed and achieve even greater heights than they did previously. All of these things, the perspective of the person directs the emotion. So, and I think that's what you can see from the Ibn Ezra giving this analogy. He's trying to say that what a person thinks is in the realm of possibility is what they desire. If they understand that God has a system that determines who receives what things and who does not. And rather than worrying about the belief, rather than entertaining the fantasy that what belongs to somebody else or what they have attained could really or should really belong to me, I can instead seek what God does have in store for me and has destined for me. And that perspective and recognition that God will provide for me what I need and what's best for me allows me to release myself from fantasizing or desiring what the other person has. And so it's really a change of mind. It's a change of my of my understanding. The advance in understanding follows, uh, you know, or is followed by, I should say, a change in emotion. Anytime you change your perspective, like if you're able to see a situation where you get very frustrated with a person, but then you realize that they've just gone through a terrible experience in their life and they're feeling very upset and they're feeling uh, really down and they're feeling really angry because of a horrible thing that they've gone through, all of a sudden you change your perspective realizing that and you change your reaction. And instead of getting angry back at them, you could respond with sympathy and, uh, and, and understanding and more patience because you realize that they're speaking out of a broken heart, let's say, instead of out of malicious intent. The change in perspective really does 
cause our emotions to change. And that's what the Ibn Ezra is teaching us here in this comment. He's saying that you can get away from coveting things if you change the way you think about what you have and don't have or what other people have that you don't have. If you change your ideas and your understanding, your emotion will follow. And it's really true. Anytime you're stuck, if you just try to fight against an emotion, it will not work. But if you think into your motives and you change your perspective on the situation from a, from an, uh, an upset, from a, from a, uh, a pessimistic to an optimistic perspective or seeing what is good, what is opportunity instead of what has failed and what is, what is frustration in the situation, whatever it might be, changing your angle of perspective changes the emotion. And, um, and I think this is one of the powerful lessons we learned from this Ibn Ezra, why I like this Ibn, Ibn Ezra so much. There's another commentary here that I pulled up to share with you that is from the Rambam. Now, we don't have this particular mitzvah that he's talking about here uh, in our parashat. It's actually in parashat Kedoshim. But the, uh, the, the idea is relevant as well. Um, that the... Uh, that the Rambam talks about the commandment that we are not supposed to take revenge or bear a grudge against somebody. And he says, This is from Hilchot Deot, the Rambam's Laws of Character Traits, chapter 7. If somebody takes revenge, he has violated a negative commandment. Because it says, don't take revenge. And even though he doesn't get punished physically in the court for taking revenge, it's a terrible character trait. So, and, and what is the definition of to take revenge? To take revenge, according to the, according to the halakha, means um, that if a person, and he's gonna, he explains it here in the middle of the paragraph, that what is taking revenge? You're, you're, you asked your friend to let you borrow his shovel. He said no. So then when he comes to ask you to borrow a shovel, you also say, no, you didn't give it to me, so I'm not going to give it to you. That's called nokim. Okay, so now he says, what does the Rambam say here? He says, A person should be such... That ma'avir al midotav, he lets go of what he's entitled to, al kol divrei olam, regarding all matters of the world. Shehakol etzel amivinim divrei hevel vahavai, because for someone who really understands what's important in life, all of these things are hevel vahavai. They are all emptiness and worthless. Ve'enan kedailin komalehem. They are not worth taking revenge. It's meaningless. The person's shovel, whether they gave it to you. They hurt feelings over that. It's silly. It's nothing. And he gives the example again of the refusal to, to um, refusal to, to share the shovel. But then he says, Rather, even though when I wanted to borrow his shovel, he said, no way, I'm not going to lend you my shovel. If he comes and asks me to borrow something, I give it to him without a, without a second's hesitation. None at all. Why? Because I recognize he's telling you the reason why. He's saying because a per, it instills in us the right value when we do that. We let go of our attachment 
to the material things. We let go of our attachment to our ego when we do that. We rise to such a high level when we're able to accomplish that. And there are many stories of the Balei Musar, of the great rabbis that exhibited this kind of conduct, that they were mistreated by people, but then they not only, not only did they not respond in kind, they went out of their way above and beyond to help the people who mistreated them just to show that they held nothing against them. And that's called nikima. That's called, and then we have nitiran. Tiran is when the person say, wants to borrow a shovel and the neighbor says, no, I'm not going to lend you the shovel. But then when the neighbor comes to borrow the shovel, so then you say, you know what? You didn't let me borrow your shovel, but I'm not like you. I'm going to do the right thing and let you borrow my shovel because I'm not like you, such a cheap guy. Right? So he says, that's called noter. That's called bearing a grudge, meaning you didn't really let it go because if you had let it go, then you wouldn't be holding it against the person anymore. You wouldn't mention it. You just give it to him. Right? Rather, the Rambam says, Yimche hadavar You should not hold it against them, just let it go because, and erase it from your heart. And uh, therefore the Torah tells you to get rid of the thought from your heart because if it's in your heart, one day you'll end up taking revenge on him in another way anyway. And this is the way that people coexist in the most beautiful form when they're able to let go of these petty disputes. What is the point I think here is what the Rambam is showing you, just like the Ibn Ezra is showing you that what the Torah is asking us to do is change our sense of value and change our perspective, not change the emotion. The emotion will not change by itself. You can't fight against the emotion. You can't just try to feel differently. That you can't compel a person to do. What you can do is change perspective and change in perspective um, can cause the emotions of the person to shift as well. So if you look at this individual that didn't want to lend you their shovel and you're all bent out of shape over it and then they come and you refuse to give them your shovel, that you're feeling angry and you feel now gratified that you took revenge on them. Uh, Or if they come and ask you and you say, I'm going to give it to you, but I'm giving it to you with a grudge because, you know, you didn't give it to me and you're such a low life, but I'm better than you. So you're really basically taking revenge, but in a different way. You're giving them the shovel, but you're taking revenge by saying, I'm giving it to you, but only to show that I'm better than you. So it's a type of a revenge also. So what does that show, though? You're still caught in the pettiness. You still think it's important that the other guy didn't give you his shovel. What's the big deal? He's like, didn't give you his shovel, so what? So he, was, so he was an insensitive person. So he was uncaring. Oh, feel bad for him that he cares so much about his little shovel that he didn't want to share it with you. You know, you could look at it that way. The point is that what, what, the, what, the, what the Torah is teaching us and what the Rambam is saying here is that if you shift your idea of what's important, and that's why I said, HaKol etzel ha-mevinim devrei hevel v'havai. If a person really understands what's going on, they realize this is all nothingness. They aren't worth fighting over. The little slights, the little petty uh, issues are not worth taking revenge over. You're attaching too much importance to fleeting 
insignificant matters. And so therefore, what it really asks us to do is to think, put these things in perspective. In the big picture, how much does it matter what the person said to me that he said an insult to me or that he refused to lend me something or he was unkind to me or that he didn't give me the shovel when I really needed it. These things are all going to be forgotten over the course of time. Not anything worth attaching such significance and allowing myself to get bent out of shape over. And so if we change, again, our perspective and view, we change our emotions too. And, um, and this, is the, uh, this is where the, the Ibn Ezra and the Rambam are converging on that idea. There's an interesting statement in the Talmud in Masachet Bachot that says, Le'olam yargiz adam A person should cause their good inclination to fight against their bad inclination. It says they should always do that. What does that mean? They should have a war going on in their head between the good inclination and the bad inclination all the time. What would that even mean? That sounds like a person in a constant angst. Why would you want that? But I believe that what it means to say is that a person should constantly strengthen their good inclination over their bad inclination. Meaning if they see that they have a tendency to value certain things that they know are not really worthwhile or to be drawn to certain things that they know are problematic or to have certain emotions that they know are not healthy. Um, they're not healthy psychologically, they're not healthy morally, ethically, that they're troubling them and they, they recognize that they're, they're pulling them in a bad direction. Then the, the thing to do is to use the Yetzirah Tov to fight against the Yetzirah. In other words, to think into why this emotion or why this um, attraction or why this uh, tendency is not, uh, is not the proper one uh, to, to, to allow to govern my life. But that is not going to just be fighting against the emotion directly, but it means having the Yetzirah Tov uh, fight against the Yetzirah, which means the Yetzirah Tov means clarifying what is really important, clarifying what is really worthwhile, clarifying the correct perspective. Because if a person has that correct perspective, and the more firmly we establish in ourselves the perspective on what is really important, the more we are able to... Uh, uh, you know, to diminish the stranglehold that the Yitzhahara has on us. That's one of the reasons why they say, Aser ta Aser, um, that a person who gives tzedakah will become wealthy. So, uh, of course, we oftentimes quote this literally because we want to encourage people to give tzedakah, but there's a deeper reason for why giving of tzedakah helps a person uh, to become wealthy because really a person who's wealthy is asamech being, being wealthy is not, a, uh, is not a quantity of money. Because if a person has $10 million, but they feel like they need $100 million, it's not going to matter, uh, it's not gonna matter what, that they have $10 million. The, To them, they're still poor because they're dissatisfied. If they're dissatisfied, then it doesn't, the, the dollar value is, means nothing. Another person has $10 in their pocket, and they're, they're satisfied with their life, so they, uh, they're, just as, they're, they're actually better off than the person who has $10 million but uh, feels that they're lacking. So the so what does it mean aser to aser? It means that when a person gives of themselves, they have to detach themselves from money. They have to loosen the grip that the money has on them, and that actually allows them to put that money in perspective. It allows them to realize that money isn't everything. The giving up of the money it actually elevates them because it enables them to, to be liberated from their attachment to it and to feel more satisfied with what they have. And that's, that's at least a part of, I'm not saying that, it's, that it, there's no truth in the idea that a person is blessed more when they give more because of course the Navi actually says that that's true. But there, I, there's also 
and a, uh, a component to it that we can understand even without uh, a, a special divine blessing, which is that when a person gives of themselves, uh, has to give of their resources, they have to detach themselves from those resources and recognize that they're not an end in themselves. And that, um, and, and that can al- allow us, actually, when we let go of things, to appreciate what we have even more and, and to change our perspective, reflect upon what really is the significance of the wealth that I have, the resources that I have, the whatever it may be. Uh, you know, what should I really be assigning priority to? And I, I find that it's a very important exercise to engage in from time to time, to think to myself, uh, I'm spending a lot of time doing X or doing Y, or, or I have a lot of X or Y, or I've, uh, X or Y has become very important to me. Is it really worth it? Is it really something that I should assign such importance to? Is it really something that I should give so much time to? Is it really so, something that I should accumulate so much of? And so on. This is some, it, how does it fit in with what my real goal in life is? Is it going to contribute to my goal in life? Is it going to interfere with my goal in life? Uh, you know, how does it relate? How does it integrate with the other activities um, that I'm doing and with my overarching goal uh, or goals in life. And when a person thinks that way, they are able to, uh, they're able to loosen the grip that certain things have on them. Um, and that's why what, the clearer your sense of what your purpose in life is, the easier it is to let go of the things that are extraneous to that purpose um, and, or that, that stand in the way of that purpose. But if you don't think more deeply in to your purpose and mission in life, then it's easy to think that these things that are really insignificant um, should hold more weight in your life. So this, I think, is a critical idea that we learn, both from the Ibn Ezra in Parashat Yitro, also from the Rambam here in Hilchot Deot, but it ties back to the Parashat we were learning uh, of Mishpatim, that what it in, it, when we are able to see another person as a human being created in the image of God just like us, and we're able to reflect upon the fact that they have the same emotional needs and material needs that we do. Uh, they have the same need for rest or for dignity, to be treated with dignity as we do. They have the same need for shelter and for clothing as we do. Um, and they have the same right to life and right to uh, the, the preservation of their property uh, as we do. So then it changes our way of interacting with them. Uh, because a lot of the uh, a lot of what causes us to mistreat other people is a sense that we are superior to them, that our concerns and what we care about is more important than uh, their concerns and what they care about, or even about their even more important than their very existence. We might think, and so when we really reflect upon things, we realize that that's not true. That the, their their divine image within them is just as real as ours. And all of their concerns are just as real as ours and, um, and, and deserve just as much respect and consideration as ours. And that's really the goal that the Torah wants to instill in us, that viewpoint, that perspective. But it requires a person to recognize that there are principles and values that transcend our petty interests and that are more important than maybe things that we tend, we think, we feel are very important, but if we really reflect upon it, maybe they're not that important, or at least less important than, uh, than we're making them out to be. 
And that's a process of growth. That's Yargiz Adam, Yetzer HaTov al To inflame the Yetzer HaTov against the Yetzer means to challenge ourselves to build a healthier and truer perspective so that the way we feel about things and about other people also changes accordingly. So I think that's really the theme of uh, Parashat Mishpatim, and that's why so many of the mitzvot in Parashat Mishpatim have a sort of like appended reason for them. That is some kind of an ethical idea or some kind of a moral idea or some kind of a uh, some kind of an inspirational message about uh, how a person should feel or how a person should uh, how, should react. Because what is really at play here is not just actions, but attitude and values and how we deal with our fellow human beings and how we deal with their property and with our property um, says, uh, you know, speaks volumes on what our actual values are and what is actually significant to us. Or, and, and what the Torah is trying to say is don't just accept what you naturally think is important. Don't just accept that your emotions naturally tell you uh, is important. Think into what you should think is important, what you should consider important. That's something we can do. As I said, we can't directly alter our feelings as long as our perspective hasn't changed. But if we change our perspective and deepen our perspective and really reflect on what is important, like, do I really need this or do I really need that? What is the real purpose of my life? Can I let go of certain things? Can I give them up or can I minimize them since they don't really contribute much to what my ultimate goal in life is anyway? Um, that allows us the freedom to be able to see things and react to things in a more mature way. There's a story about the Chafetz Chaim that one time he was walking with a businessman and the businessman was complaining about his, uh, about his losses in business and his struggles and all the troubles. And he was really crying to the Chafetz Chaim. He was very upset. And all of a sudden they're walking by and they see a child with toy broken on the ground. And the child is crying. And the Chafetz Chaim goes to comfort the child. And this businessman says, oh, why are you making such a big deal? It's only a toy. It's not that significant. It's not a big deal. It's just it's a broken toy. Of course, to the child, a broken toy is the end of the world, but to this businessman, a broken toy is nothing. And the Chavetz Chaim turned to the businessman and said, you look at the child and say, it's just a broken toy. Hashem is looking down at you and saying that it's just a broken toy also. It's all relative. The material things we think are so important to a child, what their world, in their world, the toys, the things that are important to them are of the ultimate significance. They mature and think that things that are maybe more substantial are really what's significant. But you can mature even beyond that and recognize that even those things are not of the ultimate significance, but are of only relative significance. And there are things that transcend and, uh, and, and override the significance of the material things as well. So Bezrat Hashem, uh, you know, the, 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 the lessons of this parasha, not just the laws of this parasha we should observe, but the lesson of what is really valued or what should be valued, not just what is, but what should be valued, we'll be able to live up to, to aspire to live up to those values in our lives. And uh, as it says, that the mishpatim really are the, uh, the observance of the mishpatim is the condition upon which Hashem uh, will bring his divine presence back to the Jewish people. 
Uh, just like it says in Parashat, the, the, the reason why Parashat Truma, the building of the Mishkan, comes after Mishpatim, is that it's only when the Jewish people are able to rise above their pettiness and their materialism and to, and to really live by the values conveyed in the Mishpatim of what's important. Um, that's when they will be worthy of having the Mishkan. The same thing is true that the Nevi'im said about the third Beit HaMikdash, that we'll only receive the third Beit HaMikdash when we live up to the principles of justice that the Torah expects of us. And the principles of justice, again, are not just about behaviors, but they're about values. They're about what we see as really important, recognizing the dignity and, and sanctity of the divine image in every person and of the quality and uh, of every person, that, and, and the, the right that every person has, not only to dignity, but to freedom and to uh, their, you know, their property being respected and their needs being uh, addressed. And so, Bezvat Hashem, we should all be able to live up to the values conveyed in Parashat Mishpatim so that we can have the zechut uh, to see the geulah, the redemption, speedily and in our time. Have a great evening, everyone, and we'll see you next